Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Lainey. Hi, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, Ellen Pompeo. Special edition. Yes. In case you didn't hear, in case you're catching up, we are recording the podcast on a special day, releasing it on a special day, because yesterday when this article was released, it was an APB. So I want to date this because I, I want us to remember this Ellen Pompeo article and interview in The Hollywood Reporter. Moment. This Ellen Pompeo, like, bomb drop. That's right. So it was January 17th, 2018, a Wednesday. The Hollywood Reporter releases their new cover featuring Ellen Pompeo, who has just become the highest paid woman on television. The article is time stamped at 5 a.m. PST, so 8 a.m. Eastern. Uh, yes. I send it to you, I think, around 10 a.m. Eastern. Oh, I had already read it when you sent it. Right. Uh, my phone started blowing up on a Wednesday morning. <laughs> yeah. With people going, have you read this? Have you seen this? Do you see what this woman is doing? And then our inbox starts blowing up with reader and uh, website visitors saying, this is show your work. Please talk about this on show your work. And then the comments started coming on Twitter to both of us. Hey, are you going to talk about this on show your work? Do this on show your work. And so we decided to throw out the, the regular schedule that we usually maintain and devote and rearrange our schedule for Ellen Pompeo, who deserves it. Well, not only our schedule, not only our situation, this is a totally new podcast format. Ellen Pompeo broke the mold with one interview such that we are devoting the entire episode to the glory of everything she said in The Hollywood Reporter. And the glory of everything she said is that what she did say really embodies not just what we do here at Show Your Work, but it really describes the entire industry. I mean, she hit it all. She hit gossip. She hit business. She hit money. She hit everything. I don't think Ellen Pompeo is a show your work listener. Uh, <laughs> I assume that podcasts are not her jam. But if she is, she could not have aimed this more down the middle at what we do and what we love to talk about and why it's exciting. Because as you say, it's informative, but it's also gossipy. It is extremely well-spoken and well reasoned, but she's also like filthy in her language. It's funny. It's fun. Just as a little tiny preamble, before we get into the subject headings of what we're going to do today, just true or, true or false, did you think Ellen Pompeo had it in her? I, I didn't not think she had it in her. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah. But this is not the person you were expecting was going to 
blow up everything you hold dear in terms of schedules and organization and throw out the playbook. No, and as she would say, and she does in this article, she's not Julia Roberts, <laughs> which is a throwback a, a little bit to what she says in the article. It's sort of along the same lines, but also a couple of people had written us and said, listen, you have to talk about this and show your work. She even mentions Julia Roberts. So there you go. Thank you to those of you who mentioned that. So as if there was any doubt, this entire episode is devoted to the glory of this article because there is so much. Uh, and we even got academic about it and broke down kind of the, the subject matter uh, and what we're going to talk about. Loosely speaking, and then we'll probably double back and forth a million times, uh, we're going to talk uh, about the dirt that she spills and what that says about Grey's Anatomy and the culture there and so forth. Uh, we are going to talk about money. Uh, the negotiating she did, all the gossip that she spills about that and about her deal and what it means and how it is. And we're going to talk about the relationships that she talks about. Uh, it's no surprise to anybody, but Shonda Rhimes is a kind of omniscient character through this whole interview. And she's referenced in a way that assumes everybody is intimately familiar with her. And I think that's really interesting and something we wanted to dig into a lot. And throughout, we're going to include your emails and comments that you sent to us. We read them all. We parsed them. We put them into categories. Uh, and we are excited to go. Let's go. Well, let me start by um, telling you something that I forgot. Not that... I shouldn't say I forgot, but it wasn't top of mind. Like, I don't walk around thinking, oh, Ellen Pompeo is prickly in the best way. Oh, funny. See, I do. I So, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, that might be the descriptor. I don't know if you watched, uh, there was a small video interview included with the article. Uh, it's something that The Hollywood Reporter does all the time. Uh, and it was pretty boring, especially in comparison to the article, except for the last question, which was, what do you hate being asked in interviews? And she said, anything about myself. <laughs> and it's so dry and wonderful. Yeah. What reminded you that Ellen Pompeo is prickly? Or what had taught you that and then you forgot? Well, I, so I'm reading this and I was like, oh yeah, I know this person. This is actually always who she's been. And I remembered she was on Ellen a few years ago, mm -hmm. which I wrote about, and I will link to it in our show notes. And on Ellen, and you go to Ellen to be nicey, nice, happy, happy, dancey, dancey, right? Sure. Like you and play to be, games. Yes. Someone pops out of a, a box and you pretend to be surprised and then you giggle and laugh. You show a video of yourself hugging a sloth. Yes. She was so super prickly on, on Ellen. Not in like a way that was off-putting, at least not to me. I was like, damn, I love her. You know, she is the kind of person who'll give you a real interview. She doesn't go there to play and to do a rehearsed anecdote and it feels kind of fake and you're just there for the three o'clock audience. She, and I will link to it, she was like, yeah, um, we wrote that storyline into Grey's Anatomy because we were trying to get ratings. <laughs> um, it was really, really great. 
and I called her prickly then, a few years ago, and I remembered it when I was reading this article. So the point being here is that this is not, this edge of Ellen Pompeo's is not new. Like she wasn't pretending to be a nice person, a warm person, and then now she gets paid $20 million and she's like, this is the real me. It, it's always been there. And what you're referring to, uh, to use a cliched term, in case you're living under a rock and haven't read this article, mom, pause the podcast and read the article, uh, she pulls zero punches. She tells the absolute truth about everything from money to how she feels about herself, how she felt about television, uh, and everything in between. You are getting it unvarnished. And so let's start with the unvarn- the gossip, if we're talking about unvarnished, right? Let's get right to the dirty stuff. Sure. So, you know, what she does is she gives us the gossip, but it's always in context. So we have gossip about how it works on set, in particular on the set of a, a long-running and very successful television show that, what, is 24 episodes a season? 22, and now because it's such a ratings juggernaut, um, you know, they've gone beyond what was the standard, which is now massive television order. 22 was the gold standard maybe in 2005 when it began. Yeah. 24 was unheard of. Yeah. And they keep doing it. Yeah. And I just want to set the stage for the hit show that you're talking about that now gets 24 episodes. She talks about how Grey's Anatomy debuted. It was an instant smash. Everybody was ecstatic, except for her, quote, I was fucked, she recalls thinking at the time. I knew I was fucked. So this is the person who is the lead, the name, going into this hit juggernaut of a show, which we're talking about 14 seasons later. And so during the course of these 14 seasons, she's very candid about the fact that they didn't always get along and that people behaved badly. Now, she doesn't get specific, but we have heard all kinds of rumors and reports and allegations, who got fired, who said this to whom. Well, let's lay it out because I think we almost might have forgotten. The earliest, biggest scandal from Grey's Anatomy was Isaiah Washington getting into a verbal slash possibly physical fight with Patrick Dempsey and in the context of that fight, using a homophobic slur to refer to T.R. Knight. George. George. (laughs) T.R. Knight, who played George. I think that was season two. I think we were about a year into the massive swell of Grey's Anatomy. Everybody was playing How to Save a Life all the time. That's scandal number one. Right. Scandal number two-ish? Is that Catherine Heigl? Yeah. Yeah. Scandal number two, Katherine Heigl, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of chicken and egg because the image I have that embodies Katherine Heigl and the associated scandal. Izzy. <laughs> <laughs> Izzy, the model who worked her way through medical school. Yeah. Uh, yes, Isabel Stevens. Uh, a lot of people think of this massive storyline that she had with uh, – 
Jeffrey Dean Morgan, he she fell in love with a patient, he died, it was a lot of drama. But the next season, in the season opener, she was trying to resuscitate a deer. And somewhere in the midst of that season, she talked about how she hadn't submitted herself for Emmy Awards because she felt, and this is a paraphrase of a well-known quote, mm-hmm. Uh, I hadn't been given the material to warrant a nomination. Uh-huh. And that was season, I want to say, four. Right. Which is, let's be clear, a knock on the writers. Oh, yeah. You say, I haven't been given the material. Yeah. If I had, I would have killed it. hmm But I didn't. And through all this time, Ellen Pompeo is silent. She's not in the press. She's not going out. She is not hanging out on Letterman's couch. Steady as she goes. I mean, absent as she goes. She was not playing. Yep. Right? She was not playing. And then Izzy left, or sorry, Catherine Heigl leaves. Um, And a few years ago, uh, it was three years ago now, almost three years ago, Patrick Dempsey leaves the show. And there were all kinds of rumors about why Patrick Dempsey left the show. So scandal number three-ish. Uh, there was a rumor that he had had an affair on set with someone who worked on the show, like a production assistant or a member of the crew. Um, there were some denials, but at the same time, he was also divorcing his wife or his wife had filed for divorce. Uh, he leaves the show. Nobody's sorry to see him go. Shonda does not say like, oh, I'm so sad. She kills him. Well, I got to back you up there. Um, because if you're talking about Izzy when I say Catherine Heigl and George when I say T.R. Knight. Yes. Fair. Patrick Dempsey Mm -hmm. isn't just Patrick Dempsey Mm -hmm. leaving the show. He's not even the lead male leaving the show. Patrick Dempsey was introduced in the pilot as, and I quote, McDreamy. Yes. He was... Like a phenomenon. Yes. And he'd been around, but this was a massive career resurgence. Uh, He plays opposite Ellen Pompeo. He, you know, to give him his due, could have had chemistry with a box. Mm -hmm. Like he was in it when he was in it. Oh God, he was great. The hair. Yeah, the twinkly eyes. The way he looked in his like doctor smock. What do you call those? Scrubs. Scrubs, right. Yasik just filled in scrubs at the same time as Duanna, but he whispered it. Anyway, his hair, the way he looked, um, you know, his, that sensitivity. I mean, it was, it was a full-blown TV phenomenon, Meredith and Derek. Yeah, I feel like we keep using that word, but I think we may have forgotten yes. exactly how big it was. It's a big fucking deal. And when he left, it was big fucking headlines. Um, and, but we were also... You know, Shonda was very clear, I think, as clear as anybody can be, to be like, uh, yeah, we're going to move on and see you later. They killed him. Like, he cannot come back. Okay, yeah, she killed him. And in the quotes about it, there's not a lot of love lost between Shonda and Patrick Dempsey. But here's what I love. She does it without selling out the character. When they ask her... Why did McDreamy have to die? Why did the character have to die? She says, the decision to have him die that way was not difficult in the sense of what were the options? 
Either he was going to walk out on Meredith and leave her high and dry, and what was that going to mean? That was going to suggest that the love was not true, the thing we had said for 11 years was a lie, and McDreamy wasn't McDreamy. For me, that was untenable. So even as she's maligning the actor, which she gets to in a paragraph later that we will also (laughs) link to, she's protecting the characters. And this is the environment where Ellen Pompeo has worked for 14 years. So we've sort of done a run-through of some of the major gossipy items to do with Grey's Anatomy. And she doesn't name these, Ellen Pompeo, in this THR interview. What she does is she alludes to bad behavior. She alludes to actors behaving badly. She says, I was one of those actors too. I saw other people behaving badly. They were the squeaky wheel. They got what they wanted. So I started behaving badly because I was like, fuck it. Why should they get what they get? And I don't get anything for, I don't get rewarded for behaving well. So I'm going to be a dick too, and this is just the way it is on a lot of these shows. I like the way that she describes the culture on set, that it's boring, that they're there for 14 hours a day, that these are people who, um, let's be honest, want to be somewhere else. What does she say here? She says, they're actors. They want to do whatever they're not doing. You could give them a fucking beautiful chocolate ice cream cone with sprinkles, and they're going to say they want strawberry. It's a very, um, you don't hear actors talking about themselves and their colleagues like this very often. I wouldn't say it's dismissive. I just appreciate the honesty. Because, listen, we do a gossip column. We are snarky about celebrities and we try to, like, give you a picture of how it works in this industry a lot. That they're spoiled, that they can be a little ungrateful. And she acknowledges that without necessarily abandoning or betraying her profession. She's just telling it like it is. Well, and a lot of this comes from, again, 14 years. So we've talked about how sets work and how they are. But a lot of times we talk about movies and you talk about how intense it is and how crazy. At 14 years, that's just a workplace. I was thinking about some of the scandals you were talking about and the idea that, yeah, you know, we haven't heard a lot recently. But, you know, those are the equivalent of happening in second and third grade for Ellen Pompeo. Like, she's a high school graduate at this point. Those were way back in the day. You know, it's a long time ago. And the 14 hours and the boringness that you talk about, for 14 years to show up every day at you know, maybe 6 a.m., maybe 2 p.m. if you're doing night shoots, maybe who knows what, and 14 hours each and every day. Yeah, it's boring. Yeah, you can need stimulation. Yeah, you can see how people would get cranky. Uh, And as she says in one of the many stellar quotes, which I'm going to read verbatim, the truth is anybody can be good on a show season one and two. Can you be good 14 years later? Now that's a fucking skill. Like, bravo. Like this whole thing. Like, I mean, we're just going to be like pounding the desk and pounding the table throughout this podcast here. Amazing. Well, because nobody talks like that. Nobody says those things. I mean, one of the things that we loved about this is that there's an acknowledgement that a flashy of the moment Hollywood actress is a flashy of the moment Hollywood actress. And 
Ellen Pompeo is making headlines because she's extremely highly paid, and we'll get to that. But when it comes down to it, she's going to a job. She is showing up at a workplace every day for 14 years. You've never been crusty at your work that you've been at for 14 years? Of course you have. You haven't felt, hey, I've been here for 13 years. I'm not getting enough credit. Of course you have. She's just interesting enough to be honest about it. And I think that part of that honesty is acknowledging, too, that what happens when you're an actor and you're sitting around for 14 hours and what you've done is gotten your makeup done and someone's picked out your clothes for you and you are the priority on the set, you know, you definitely, you very rarely have to go get anything for yourself. It spoils you. And yeah, it spoils you and it also atrophies you, you know. uh, Makes you less hungry. Maybe it makes you less hungry or less contented, you know, uh, because, yeah, it can be boring. I mean, especially if you look at that show, if you have been on a show for 14 years, she's done every scene. She's done every, like, I'm in a surgery scene for 85 hours. You know, it's going to be a lot of standing and talking. Yeah. Maybe she'll sit at the admitting desk and sit and talk. Maybe she'll ride in the back of an ambulance and sit and talk and maybe do some chest compressions. It's not a huge challenge all the time. You don't get to say to your boss, hey, I I need a new something, because your boss is going, yeah, we ran some people through with a rod from a train in season two. Like, I'm there. We blew up Kyle Chandler into bits of flesh in season three. I'm here. I'm making you have stuff to do. There's not much more that can change for you at season six, at season eight. Yeah, it can get boring. I I do think that it's interesting. It presents an interesting question, which I don't know if we'll be able to answer today or ever, whether or not it's one of those, um, like, it it just becomes a chicken and egg situation where you have actors who are bored and spoiled, and then in turn, because they are bored and spoiled – they're also treated like children a lot of the time. Um, and she alludes to it as well. This might be bleeding into topics that we'll discuss later, but she alludes to the fact that when she directs, because she's been an actor before, in order to keep the actors interested, she gives them the script earlier. She asks them to consult or at least keeps them informed in ways where traditionally actors aren't informed and aren't consulted. And so coming from the place of where she's an actor and she's been uninspired or um, atrophied, she understands that, hey, let me just try and shake this up for the babies, the spoiled little baby actors. But I do think it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, insight what she's done. Like she's really given us in very, a very spare amount of words, really, a lot more of like a pullback of the curtain as to what it's like in environments like this where, yeah, and I've been in those environments. I've visited sets. I also work in a television environment. Talent is often treated like babies. Well, yeah, but I don't think that's the same thing as being spoiled. Um, I think that I want to be clear. Like you can be spoiled in that, as you say, like you don't get up to get your own water and there's somebody who lets you stay in your trailer or a holding room or whatever till the very last second so you're not waiting around for any second. And if you're doing a scene and it's cold and you do your your scene, 
the second they call cut, somebody comes to wrap you in your warms, as they're called, your robe or your blanket or whatever. So they're certainly pampered. But I'm not sure that they are, uh, you know, I don't think that alone creates divas. Where's my hummus? Like, I don't think that's the case. I think, though, that when your brain atrophies, uh, then it can be, that can make you really, really cranky and cantankerous. Uh, And I think what's interesting about what we're talking about is she almost has made a conscious choice to steer out of what could be just plain cantankerousness. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. There are many actors that we both know that we've met, worked with, who seem perfectly, beautifully charming in person, who do a really, really great interview uh, on a couch, who, you know, will sign a million autographs. But on set, they are truly miserable people. Uh, And God, I could list them for you, but often they are people's favorites and it breaks their heart a little bit. Chevy Chase is a known crank who made everybody miserable, even though people love him for fans. One of the things that jumps out most to me about this interview, and it kind of segues us into our next topic, is that the things Ellen Pompeo asks for and is now receiving are about keeping her brain occupied because she wasn't content just to be a cantankerous actor, just to be a brat who sits there, collects her paycheck, and goes home. Before we segue to the next topic on our agenda, um, we got an email that was related to the gossip, or is gossipy, about the gossip that Ellen dishes. Um, and it's from a longtime reader, uh, Nadia. Go ahead, Duanna, read the email. I mean, I should read it in the order it came to me. You know when you read an email from a top down and your comment is first, which is just, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, we write, we talk about, uh, do Ellen Pompeo and Shonda just send emails back and forth to crack each other up? I feel like this is a good 21% of our relationship. The email read in full, no intro, no, uh, no <laughs> greeting, no salutation, all small letters. Do you think that lady is upset seeing this? What's her name? She didn't want to be nominated because the writing on the show wasn't good? You know her. She hangs with her mother all the time. (laughs) 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 Like, have you ever heard a better le mot juste? Again, Ellen Pompeo, if you are listening, please just send us a sign that you're killing yourself laughing. You know her. She hangs with her mother all the time. Okay, so aside from the gossip and the dirt and the um, the insight into the culture of working on an, any TV series, but, you know, on Grey's Anatomy, there is a lot of work talk and a lot of money talk. Lots and lots of money talk. Right. And so that kind of begins chapter two. And just a tiny bit of history here. Uh, if you are not a scholar of television, Grey's Anatomy saved network TV, basically. ABC was not doing well. This show premieres on ABC is a massive instant hit. It goes for years and then it's used as a 
lead in for Scandal, which becomes another massive hit in and of itself, uh, which then eventually kind of begets How to Get Away with Murder. Uh, there is a planned spinoff in the works. We're talking about 14 years like this is just how it goes, but this is never how it goes. There's never a show that is on for this long and does this well. And I bring this up not to talk about Shonda Rhimes and how amazing she is. I bring this up because the name of the show is Grey's Anatomy. Ellen Pompeo is Meredith Grey. She is the whole reason the show exists. And that's the context with which I want to talk about this next kind of arena of deliciousness this article provides. Well, the setup in the article to Ellen's very candid discussion about money matters um, is, and this is a quote from The Hollywood Reporter, actors typically hate discussing their paychecks in the press. And it goes on to say that Ellen, who's a mother of three, wanted to seize this moment of time's up and this moment where women are, are demanding equality. She wanted to do it to set an example for others. Um, and so this is how radical it is, really. There are very few actors and actresses who will cover a trade magazine like this. And remember, we talked before about THR's um, popularity within the industry. You know, it's not just for fans anymore. The players in the industry all read the magazine to catch up on what each other is doing. Oh, yeah. And it's where you go. Uh, again, you can do an interview anywhere. You do this interview, you want the people you work with to know That's right. what you're going to say. So she didn't do this in Vogue. She didn't do this um, in Forbes. You know, Forbes is a money magazine, right? If we're talking about money and negotiations and contracts, she did it in The Hollywood Reporter for a reason, and it's because it's the trade that Hollywood reads. So agents, producers, studio executives, actors, everybody is reading this. And she is not shy, and that's why this is radical, about being like, Here's how much I get paid now. These are the details of how, I'm, how much I get paid. This is what my deal looks like. This is what I had to do to get paid what I get paid now. And she's very frank about why. Uh, I said that quote earlier about I knew I was fucked because she's very frank at the beginning of the article that she did Grey's Anatomy because she needed money. She didn't want to do Grey's Anatomy. She wanted to be a film actress, was maybe even making some headway as a film actress or had had some nibbles, was broke. At which point her agent says, go try out for this show. Just go do the pilot. Maybe it won't get picked up. Maybe you'll just do a season. So she's thinking, right, exactly. And then I'll have some money and then I can get back to my movie career right? Like this is a stepping stone, which is why when the show is a massive hit and your name is in the title, she said she was fucked because she's not going back to movies anytime soon. And this is a point that you and I have discussed a lot throughout the course of our friendship when we talk about work. We talk about TV and the pay that TV can bring to actors. And we talk about the fact that People that you don't think are very famous and where you might scale on the B list or the C list are often making more money from residuals of successful TV shows they did 
maybe 10 or 15 years ago than people you would consider proper movie stars. Yeah. My favorite examples of this are Jared Padalecki and Allison Hannigan. And you may not know who either of them are. Uh, Allison Hannigan did seven seasons of Buffy. She was Willow. And then did 10 seasons of How I Met Your Mother. Nothing acclaimed, nothing crazy. Do you know how wealthy that woman is? After years, not just of residuals, which is uh, when you get paid each and every time the show airs on kind of a constantly sliding scale, but also uh, sales to international countries also count towards those residuals. Jared Padalecki was on Gilmore Girls for four years, which is still robustly seen in all kinds of places, and is in something like season 12 of Supernatural. So this is the dirty secret. TV pays. And perhaps in a different time, I thought you were going to say something else when you said, we've discussed this throughout our friendship. Uh, I used to talk about TV more. It is still my first love and where I live and work and sort of get familiar. And you kind of would be like, yeah, but like, are they getting an Oscar? Are they doing this? And I think we would both acknowledge those times have changed. The Mm -hmm. power players have changed. Oh, I, I always look to you because now we're in the era of peak TV. So everybody's like TV, TV, but I always look to you as probably in my life, the person who was the first defender of TV over film. Not that you don't appreciate film, but you really advocated for TV in spite of the fact that for a long time and probably still, although the margin is closing rapidly, there is a hierarchy, which we write about all the time on Laney Gossip. There is a hierarchy, not just in the audience's perception, but among people in Hollywood, as Ellen alludes to herself, because she believed in it, as she says, there is a hierarchy in particular among actors, but also agents and studios and producers that being in film is the ultimate goal. And that television was always seen as a stepping stone to get into film. And that's why she had that reaction. Fuck, I don't want to be on TV. Fine, I'll audition for this. I need the money. And when she realized how successful Grey's would be, she said, oh no, I'm fucked. Even after the first season success or maybe half a season success of Grey's Anatomy, Ellen Pompeo is admitting that even then she was like, fuck, now I'm stuck on this show. And it's, it's a really, really endearing, I mean, I love her for this admission because even though other people have acknowledged that, yeah, they do want to get into film and this and that and the other, no one is as specific about it as she has been, where she has said, I thought I was fucked. Uh, I thought it sucked. And, um... I thought it was a movie star. Name checking, like what? Spielberg, Sam Mendes, all these big time directors who wanted to work with her. Like it is, she's so honest about that reality. Well, you know, maybe that's why there's such a bond between she and Shonda Rhimes. We'll get there uh, in a minute. But Shonda Rhimes, as we often talk about on the site and on this podcast, uh, wrote Crossroads, you know, was working her way up in a film environment. And until exceedingly recently, uh, I would say until she signed the nine-figure Netflix deal that she signed recently, uh, still was 
underappreciated, maligned. I was not joking when I said Shonda Rhimes saved network television. She may have also ushered in peak TV. People talk about uh, The Sopranos, but let's face it, The Sopranos is on HBO. Not everybody watched that. She made everybody sit back down in front of their TVs rapidly with Grey's Anatomy. So what I'm interested in there is that both of these women navigated their way through a time when TV was not seen as high profile. And instead of being, again, that word kind of cranky or cantankerous about it, kind of steered into it. So Ellen Pompeo would have been paid in the first season of Grey's Anatomy. I don't know the exact figures, but her name's in the title, but she's mostly an unknown. There's an ensemble cast. I'm going to say she would have received $22,000 an episode. That's not nothing. That is a lot of money. That's why her agent said, go do TV. You can pay your mortgage for a while or, you know, you can, it'll be easier for you, especially when you're making nothing because the movie projects are not coming. For two years, she didn't work. $22,000. It's not quite a week uh, because she's probably only working for, you know, 25 weeks or whatever, but put it that way, $22,000 times 22 weeks uh, is close to half a million dollars and you get to take some vacation. And shots fired because she not only talks about how much she gets paid, but she relates it to how it overall looks to the industry. Because what she's saying is, hey, whatever I was getting paid then and whatever I'm getting paid now is still more than your movie star actress who's been in that blockbuster movie. This is what she's trying to say. Like, she gets really, really, I love it, aggressive here. In hope, like, I mean, I I can see her holding a megaphone to her mouth when she's saying this, because I don't think she's meaning to be dismissive. I think she's meaning to, like, I'm going to clap here, but, like, right in their faces say, hey, hey, when your agent says, I have a pilot for you, do you want to audition for it? A lot of these actresses who aim for movie stardom are saying no or saying, "Mm, but I just, you know, I'm waiting for that blockbuster. I'm waiting to work with Spielberg. I'm waiting for Christopher Nolan to call me. And she's saying, no, even if you got that movie, I'm still richer than you. Exponentially richer. You know, I'm reminded of last week on the podcast when we talked about Tyra Banks turning down uh, a contract renewal with Victoria's Secret and that she left all that money on the table. And even though she's wealthy and successful, she's still a little bit fussed with herself about having left it there. If you do an indie movie, uh, say you are, God, I don't know, say you're in Lady Bird. Saoirse Ronan was already an Oscar nominee, but that's an independent movie. I don't know what her salary would be, but it's not it maybe, maybe would be two, three hundred thousand for a movie like maybe. that. Maybe. That's a tiny movie with a tiny budget. Well, compare it to what you just told me before we started recording the podcast. Michelle Williams' base salary before reshoots for all the money in the world. This is a four-time Oscar nominee. It's a lead role in a studio picture directed by Ridley Scott. The studio has the budget, or it's a bigger budget than Lady Bird. And Michelle Williams got paid for that film six twenty five, right? That's right, six twenty five k. So six hundred twenty five thousand. So Lady Bird does not have anywhere near really that kind of budget. So 
when you make that comparison, Saoirse Ronan's walking away with, yeah, maybe a hundred or $200,000. And, you know, we've talked about that's before you get to all the costs of uh, the red carpet and promoting yourself and all those other things. Or the one I love is uh, Margot Robbie, who of course is huge in the press right now and who self-produced I, Tonya. So it's not like she would have been making a lot of money on that on the front end. We'll get to the back end and what that is in a minute. But she did Suicide Squad. And if the internet is to be believed, uh, her salary was about $1.3 Again, not shit money, but not $20 million when you're doing five movies a year, circa Julia Roberts style. And what I loved about an interview she did is that she talked about because she did a movie like that, which made her so recognizable, she now has these gigantic expenses in security fees. She now has to hire personal security everywhere she goes. And, you know, I don't know what that costs, like a couple grand a month, but that can eat up your salary, especially if you're only doing indie films. Meanwhile, Ellen Pompeo is over at ABC getting a bump every year. Every year she's getting a bump uh, because that's standard in television and because after a certain number of years you would renegotiate your contract altogether, but not as much of a bump as she would have expected. This to me was the most interesting part, I think, of the article overall. She kind of compiles all her years of negotiation into a couple of sentences, but she says they would always say to her, uh, quote, they could always use him as leverage against me. Her quote, we don't need you. We have Patrick, quote, which they did for years. I don't know if they also did that to him because he and I never discussed our deals. So again, she's the lead. She sticks around through the Isaiah Washingtons and the Catherine Heigl's and all the other drama. And she like literally watches Kyle Chandler get blown up. Again, this may be <laughs> the most seminal moment. Uh, and they're nickel and diming her on the money. Now, I wonder if we are a bit cynical because I was not that surprised at this, but it's another one of those things that you rant about to your husband or your friends at home, but that people don't talk about in the press. No. And I think that this is one of, there are many, many areas here, even though this is an actress. Yes, she's getting paid, what, $20 million. I get it. But I think that this is where it becomes really relatable to real life, people who don't work in the industry. Because how many of us have felt in a certain position that there was someone else who they would just give it to you, that there was, that there was someone else that our bosses would just replace us with or give it to? I don't think that this is something that is, un this is a feeling that's unfamiliar to anybody out there. No. And in fact, she talks about how it felt when her bosses said just that to her. Uh, she says, at one point I asked for five grand more than him just on principle because the show is Grey's Anatomy and I'm Meredith Grey. They wouldn't give it to me. And I'm sure that in that context, she asked for X plus five. Whatever he's getting, I want five grand more. You know what five grand is? Nothing. It's a sneeze. It is nothing. And they wouldn't give it to her. And then she says, and this is the part that really gets me, and I could have walked away, so why didn't I? It's my show. I'm the number one. I'm sure I felt what a lot of these other actresses feel. Why should I walk away from a great part because of a guy? You feel conflicted, but then you figure, I'm not going to let a guy drive me out of my own house. Who 
doesn't know that feeling? Who hasn't had that feeling of, they fucked me. Am I going to back down from my ultimatum? Yeah, I guess I am. I guess I'm staying. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And for some people who find themselves in that situation, the only option is to leave. And we'll get to why she didn't leave. There was one huge reason that she didn't leave, and that's Shonda. There was a loyalty to it. We will get to that. But to to bring it back or to extend it out to a real-world application, I have been there. I'm sure you have been there. Where essentially what they were telling her was, um, sure, leave if you want to. We always have Patrick. The message there was, you are not irreplaceable. And I think a lot of us, most of us, all of us have felt that way in the workplace, where that's how they hold you. When they say you are not irreplaceable, first of all, it makes you feel insecure in the place where you already are, where you're not even asking for a raise. It makes you feel like in your own, oh, plateau situation, I can still, I I don't have security. Maybe I overstepped. Maybe I asked for too much. That's right. And then on top of all that, it makes you think, oh shit, then can I even leave? Where will I go? If I'm irreplaceable, is anybody going to want me? That's right. The other thing that I find really amazing about these discussions is Ellen Pompeo uh, and any other actress you've ever heard of negotiates through uh, a team, through an agent. And, you know, on the surface, that looks really good. Uh, Certainly when I have not had uh, that person, you think that's amazing. They'll just go and get the the money for me and you just sit back and it's all very, uh, you know, it keeps everybody's hands clean because you're not yelling at somebody in the room. But it also kind of ties your hands behind your back a little bit because you're not yelling at somebody in the room. You're not saying to the person the way you know she would have because of the way she speaks in this article, are you telling me I mean nothing? You're telling me that I don't matter, that you can make the show without me. Are you fucking serious? I'm Meredith Grey she would say. But she's not saying that because it's all done through intermediaries. And if she passes that executive on the lot, they smile at each other. And that is kind of a real world application to me as well. Because you never say in those negotiations, whether you're sitting in front of your boss or a chain of 10 people away, you never say what you want to say, which is how dare you? Fuck you. Look at everything I've done for you. You have to keep it nice. You have to keep it clean and professional and calm. And even if she never rages like this again, I felt a real, what's that word? Catharsis? Uh, from reading it on the page, from reading her talk about how they treated her. But I love that like, yeah. And after 14 years and she got paid, now she's in the Hollywood Reporter saying, fuck you. I'm telling everybody what you did. Yes. Like she's still working with these people. The same people who used Patrick against her are still, in theory, 
paying her. Like, these are people who she's still working with. Oh, yeah. But she's <laughs> laughing. Yeah. She, I, yes, like, we're all laughing. She's going to tell the truth. So to go to Patrick Dempsey for a second. She, oh, she fucks him too here. Well, he <laughs> fucked her first. Yes. If you're going to say that. She fucks him back. Yeah. Uh, she says that she approached him several times to negotiate together, uh, but he wasn't interested in that. Uh, so we talked last week about favored nations or most favored nations, meaning that if you have that kind of a deal, you know that on a certain level, nobody's getting paid more than you. You're getting paid the same. Sometimes agents band together and work together. This is not unheard of. Most famously, especially in this context of the amount of money that we're talking about, remember the Friends cast? Mm-hmm. Remember those negotiations? Yeah. And we were like daily looking at the newspapers because that's what you had to do then. <laughs> to find out whether they were going to get $1 million a piece across the board. Because I knew, who did they want to leave behind uh, in the $1 million race? Lisa Kudrow, for sure. I think it was like three sure. and three, right? Like there was Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox probably, and I don't know, let's say… Uh, Schwimmer. Schwimmer. Yeah. Yeah. I know he was… Those rounding the, everybody up. Right. Yeah. Like those were the high paid ones. And right. then they were like, oh, on the lower scale, Lisa, Matt and Matt. Right. <laughs> right? Or, sure. Yeah. I mean, interchangeable, but definitely Aniston and Courtney Cox, I feel like would No, and, uh, and whether or not Schwimmer was on the high list or the low list, he was 100% the one who essentially… The ringleader. He unionized yeah. them. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. But, you know… Uh, for all we sort of look back on friends with uh, with like, oh, yeah, that was something and it was not something else and whatever. At the time, it was radical. It's still radical. It is still radical that they banded together like mm-hmm. that. And hearing about this is what makes it all the more rare, right? Especially because, see, this is what happens. You get all fired up about a really salient point <laughs> about finances and equality. And then she hits you with a line like this. So what does it look like when he leaves the show? First, it looks like a rating spike, and I had a nice chuckle about that. (laughs) Can you hear that? That's me banging the table. (laughs) She's petty. She admits to being petty. Yeah. It's amazing. But also, I mean, this kind of talk about money where a woman is so specific and particular and detailed in talking about the money and getting the money. First of all, as a society, we don't really do it, right? To talk about money. It's considered low classy. It's considered not elegant. But I do think that women have an added expectation not to be inelegant about these money matters. I mean, you have dudes who will go out on the golf course by themselves and talk about the $50 million investment that they've just made. Yasik has had this experience where he's been paired up with people at a golf tournament and like these these people are really literally talking about the $20 million investment they just made and this and that and the other. Women are not encouraged to speak like that um, publicly especially and even privately. I mean, they let it leak, right? Uh, When you talk about the $20 million woman, which is one of the headlines of this article, uh, you know, we can't help but think of Julia Roberts was the $20 million woman. But she wasn't talking about how she was getting paid. No. She let that leak through third and fourth parties and never addressed it. That's right. And no sit down with Diane Sawyer or Oprah would have ever said, so... 
How does it feel to basically being able to buy and sell half the people you've ever met? Mm-hmm. I come at this from a slightly different perspective um, with respect to the money talk. I I was raised in a Chinese household and generally, culturally, Chinese people talk a lot more openly about money than I would say Westerners. Also, my family is Chinese and, well, like working class. And that's the added element here with Ellen Pompeo. Very working class background. Um, they say in the article that, you know, she grew up in a rough neighborhood in Boston, sounded like not so great of a family life growing up. And even though she's a $20 million, lot more, but let's say $20 million woman now, she still speaks with the attitude of that kind of upbringing where money matters, especially if you sort of, in, in my experience anyway, speaking to people who, who were raised in working class families, because money was a concern and a stress, if you are a member of the family, it was part of your life. You didn't get to sort of skate over it because mom and dad or mom only or single dad only were looking at the bills on the dinner table and telling you, this is how much we have for groceries this week. This is something, I'm so glad you brought this up because I realized this is an experience that not everybody has that I used to think was part of growing up. Uh, I remember the day that the mortgage was paid off at our house and that it was talked about and that it was a banner event. I remember when I would ask for something, uh, you know, like one of those week-long exchange trips to France that schools have or whatever, not only did my parents say, are you crazy? You want $1,300 for what? They would enumerate for you all the things that $1,300 would do or buy. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though uh, maybe in more traditional Western families, uh, that's seen as being like an unnecessary stress on children. Uh, And, you know, you can only ever see things from the perspective of the way you were raised, but I always thought it was a financial education. It is. And in... It shapes you. And I feel like what is really coming through for me here in this article, which is something, hey, we are all going to relate to different things in this article. For me, what I related to is I really get the sense that that formed her. It shaped her. Money, not having it, worrying about it, shaped her. So that even though for many years now, 14 years, she's been quite financially stable, which is an understatement, um, you can't shake the talking about money, the almost preoccupation with money, and the framing of money as a necessity and a, hey, this is what I have. This is what's happening. Well, but also a choosing money. Like, this is a real overt choice that she made back in the day. But, uh, you know, we talked about when she took the pilot, when she did the first season, but she could have tapped out at any point since then. Uh, contracts generally, an actor can renegotiate or leave or whatever after six seasons, almost every year after that. And every year since then, she has leaned in, she has leaned onto those opportunities to go with money. And because money, with money comes freedom, with money comes power. 
So this is someone I don't think is just getting comfortable with talking about money. This is somebody who has always talked about money, who's always thought about money, who's always prioritized money. And she says in the article, this is not the career path for everybody. I get it. But this is the one I've chosen for me. So right now where we find her is the money, lots of money. You know, it's the $20 million headline. But let's break it down. What does her contract look like? What does it mean? What's, uh, you know, what are all the details in it? We had an email or we have an email uh, from Natasha who wanted to know specifically how, like how all that works together. Right. So when we're talking about a $20 million woman, uh, that's not her net worth by any stretch of the imagination. Um, The $20 million is what she's going to get for the next two seasons of Grey's Anatomy. Uh, which breaks down to 575 grand per episode. So you'll notice still below the friend stars who were getting a million apiece, plus a seven-figure signing bonus, which is literally what it sounds like. That's a check they hand you the day you sign mm-hmm. for agreeing to do things. And two full back-end equity points on the series estimated to bring in another six to seven million. So that is, if you're doing the math, that's where the 20 million gets added up. Backend is, uh, in loosest terms, a percentage of the profits from sales of the show. Uh, I wouldn't begin to estimate how many territories Grey's Anatomy is sold into, but it is in the two to three hundreds. How many countries are there on the planet? Mm-hmm. Like, it's in 92% of them. Yeah. And we talked earlier about those residuals, right? So that those residuals already were happening, then there's more residuals, then there's new licensing fees in other territories for the incoming seasons. And, you know, do, do we even factor in streaming here? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the streaming deals, that's actually an interesting question because the at the time that a lot of these actors' uh, contracts uh, were struck, streaming was not really... It's hard to know how to monetize, so that's an ongoing debate. I don't yeah. know what it is for Ellen Pompeo, mm-hmm. but certainly if anybody's on top of that, it would be her and her team. Uh, and, you know, it's worth pointing out here if you if you want to talk about it, that of those gobs of money, uh, her team, her agents, her agency would get 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, her manager... Uh, whom I'm sure she has a manager, would get an additional 15%. Uh, I would wager that she may not have a publicist because no publicist would be able to stomach an interview like this. But if she did, that publicist could get between 5 and 10% and then taxes and blah, blah, blah. Regardless, she's still a wealthy woman, but that's who gets a piece of where that money goes. Well, I asked the streaming question because two years ago when our nephew was, oh my God, how old is he now? 19. So he would have been 17. He just discovered Grey's Anatomy on Netflix. So he, at the time, was on season two. And I don't know if he's finished yet, but there are going to be forever new fans of Grey's Anatomy. Um, And so when we're talking about Ellen Pompeo in the money, it's forever. It's a long, long, long time. Right. Um, And it's interesting that Friends keeps coming up in this conversation because Friends is a hugely popular show among young teenagers. College kids. 13 to 15-year-olds, college kids. But sometimes kids who were not alive when the show ended are really big fans now. It Mm -hmm. blows my mind. So that's a, a snapshot of the money. But that's not all. 
No. Uh, so gear up for another great quote. Ellen Pompeo said to Shonda Rhimes, who essentially was moving to Netflix, said to her, hey, if you want the show to go down, I'm cool with that. But if you want it to continue, I need to be incentivized. I need to feel empowered and feel ownership of this show. And again, we'll get more into the relationship between them later on. But suffice it to say that Shonda Rhimes backs her in her negotiations and these endeavors. And what that amounts to, in addition to all that money, is that she has uh, producing fees and back end on the Grey's Anatomy spinoff, which is coming up. She also has put pilot commitments and office space for her production company on the Disney lot. So a put pilot means they're going to make the pilot. Uh, Regardless, you don't have to go through the script song and dance and whatever. Uh, She already has a legal drama that they're considering at ABC, and she sold a drama to Amazon. So when we were talking about like riding the wave of TV and of the diversification therein, this is what that looks like. Like she is finding a way to make it work for her. Well, I, she said, like, as I said earlier, she said, this is not the path for everybody, but this is the path for me because frankly, right now I'm finding it more interesting to produce. And clearly she is laying that groundwork to have more of a say in producing those, the series on Amazon. I didn't know about it until this article and it sounds awesome. The Amazon series is like one season each of the rise of a a designer, a different designer. So it could be like Christian Dior season one and then Karl Lagerfeld season two and then whatever, which I'm like, yes, I'm watching. When is it coming? Like, I want that now. Right. What I also find awesome is that it relates back to what she said earlier about not being kicked out of her house and that she's number one on Grey's Anatomy. The show doesn't exist without my character. So the spinoffs of Grey's Anatomy naturally are her children. And she's like, give me a fucking piece of my kids. Yeah, you know, and we have talked about, uh, you've often asked about like when actors say, oh, my character wouldn't say that or this or that. And that ranges from being deeply obnoxious to after... 10 years, 14 years, my God, whoever the writers are on that show, whoever the directors are, listen to this woman. She's been there. So I love that you describe it as her kids, because not only has she raised Meredith Bray from kindergarten through graduating high school and beyond, she's now able to see the journeys of almost everybody else who's been there. Nobody says this in so many words in this article, But I'm not sure if anybody has been there as completely, as totally for those 14 years as she has. It's kind of a, it's singular. Just a few minutes ago, you had mentioned, you know, the 10% to the manager and the 10% to the agents and that whole team. And here, I just want to call back to the earlier part of our discussion when we were talking about the Hollywood hierarchy and TV versus film, because that hierarchy doesn't just exist for actors who think that film is the end-all and be-all and TV is just a stepping stone. It also exists on the agent level. A few years ago, I went to Comic-Con. I was covering Comic-Con for eTalk. And I have a friend who's an agent. um, And an agent at a very successful agency. Or was an agent at a very successful agency. And so he brought me out to dinner with his colleagues. Some of those colleagues were film agents 
And some of those colleagues were TV agents. And you, you probably can, you know, sum it up a lot quicker as to their specialties. Like it's, it may happen more often these days, but typically you have agents who specialize in TV actors and agents who specialize in film. Now, given that, you know, Nicole Kidman is both a TV star and a film star now, it may change, but for a long time, there were streams. No, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, agents would be known not just for having TV or film, but uh, even though everybody wants a diverse roster, uh, there would be people you'd be more likely to call for like goofy comedy and people you would be more likely to call to staff on a soap and whatever. People kind of get into their niches the same yeah. way they typecast their actors. And there is hierarchy among those agents too. Like in the agency, the film agents were known to be the like the ones who swaggered the hardest and the ones who, you know, Ari Emanuel or Ari in, in Entourage. That's what you're looking at right now. Absolutely. But I want to be clear that for those guys, uh, and this goes back to last week's conversation about Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams, the reason those guys had the biggest swagger is because they were making the most money. For years, that was the case. Movie stars, tons of money. TV stars, less money. I mean, that has to do with boring reasons about the global economy and TV sales and so forth. TV is lucrative for dozens of reasons it didn't used to be. But if you're getting real basic about it, that's one of the reasons why there was a hierarchy. I have a bigger money dick than you do. And Take us back to your dinner. So, I mean, yes and no. Like, I totally, I agree. Back in the day, it was money that was making agents more money on, on, a, on a splashier scale. But if you talk to the TV agents, and for a moment at this dinner party, I was on the side with the TV agents, they were like, yeah, we're the lesser thans in the agency, but, you know, think of it as our money or the money we make the agency from our TV clients is regular. It comes in steadily and it funds the big operation. You've got the big splashy guys with a one-time deal once a year where their client signs to $20 million. But my five clients are on shows that are five years old, six years old. This is the regular paycheck that is like keeping the water running and the electricity running in the building. Yeah, but that's just underscoring the same point. Who's sexier? The <laughs> guy who keeps the yeah. lights on or the guy who walks in with the bottle of Dom Perignon, right? Like yeah. the credit is always going to go to the big splashy guy, even if, just to really mess up our metaphor here, even if that guy's <laughs> credit card is overextended, right? It, and it, it was so, in, like for me, I was like obviously fascinated with this kind of split, right? Like this kind of hierarchy. And I remember though, at one point, one of the film agents leaned over and started listening to the conversation and said to us, fuck, if only my film clients would take a TV show now and again. I have to sometimes beg them and they still won't do it. That was, I want to say, 2010. It's now 2018. I don't think that he would say the same thing now. You mean you don't think he'd have to convince them? Correct. Now? Yes. Right. Uh, and I bet you're right. And I think that's fascinating on a number of levels. But again, those people who are maybe coming around now, Pompeo came around 14 years ago. She's mm -hmm. so far ahead of you. She has been riding this already for so long 
Um, and that's why, you know, we're going to get into sort of the, uh, the elements of what enabled her to do this and how she got where she is. But we've talked about actors who have production companies and vanity projects and all those kinds of things. Uh, and some of them really are hands-on producers with like hair up in a bun, glasses on, and some of them just put their names on things and everything in between. But this is a woman who has so clearly been studying, uh, who talks about her agency giving her the breakdown of what money uh, Disney ABC was making from Grey's Anatomy in order to make her decisions, and who has been studying on the set of Grey's Anatomy for 14 plus years, and now two more. She's so ready for this. She is going to produce amazing, amazing television, and I'm so here for it. So before we move on to the next item on the agenda, given that this was the contract money section of our discussion, what is the real world application and takeaway from this situation? For those of us, everybody out there who, you know, we're not going to be looking at contracts worth $20 million. A year. (laughs) But we are negotiating for raises, for promotions, for a different office, for more vacation time. Well, I think you just hit it, right? I think that it is important to go in with, this is what I want, uh, and to find real concrete ways to do that. Like sometimes you have a job and you feel underappreciated and you kind of want to raise, but you know, a lot of jobs have those bands, those publicly posted bands, and you know that you can only get sort of two or five or whatever more in your band. Uh, So you need to go in with appreciable ways that they can give you what you want in other situations. What does it look like if you create your own title? What does it look like if you get the title bump? Like show them what they have to do to keep you, I think is part of it. Uh, But just also study the fuck up. Like she just comes off, even though there's profanity all through this. And again, uh, my mom is, is, uh, listening going, well, does it need to be vulgar? Um, Ellen was, she was, (laughs) is, but she's clearly educated herself on every angle of what she's asking for. Obviously it's an edited interview, but there's no hesitation. There's no, I wish I had this, or maybe what I'm trying to say is that She is very, very straightforward about, I was worth this, and so I asked for that. But how she figured that out is kind of another question. What do you think about about contracts and negotiation? Well, I I obviously, I agree with everything you said, and I also think an added element to that is self-awareness. That's not to say a lack of confidence. It's a realistic self-awareness of where you stand in your position. And I say this because she says, one of my favorite uh, quotes from her is, she says, I'm not necessarily perceived as successful. So the word perceived is critical here. She knows how she is seen. And we started this podcast off with, did you think it would be Ellen Pompeo that got us so excited? Right? That was the question. That speaks exactly to these six words that she talked about her perception. So I think that that was, to me, a highlight for actually how much work, as you said, and studying she's done. She actually, she really came into these negotiations 
definitely not underselling her value, knowing her value, knowing she's the number one, but also knowing what the perception of her in the industry is as well. I think that that is a complete understanding of where you are in your career and who you are and what your assets are. Um, and I, I would like to, I would like to be, I would like to work towards a place where I can say I'm not necessarily perceived as X. I think we all can. Well, there's another half to that sentence, right? I'm not necessarily perceived as X, comma, but here are all the reasons I am X, right? Here are all the reasons I am successful, valuable, worth this money. The other thing is that we keep talking about how rich she is, how much she's getting from this deal. But, you know, this is also altruism on her part. To name the dollars and say the amounts of money and the struggles is a feminist act, is giving women uh, more information. It's not an accident that the day after this article, uh, The Hollywood Reporter released an article that says, uh, released an article for which the headline is, Sharing Salaries, How Actresses Are Fighting Hollywood's Gender Pay Disparity with Transparency. It's a delicious read, including a lot about your favorite Tracy Ellis Ross uh, and the drama there. Um, But the more these actresses and everyone in the industry and outside the industry shares and is open and is pooling their knowledge, the better off we are. So when we were breaking down how we were going to break out this discussion, the word that you use to discuss this last kind of pocket of ideas and items that Ellen Pompeo brings us was loyalty. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, talk a little bit about why that was what came to mind. Well, it was the word that she used um, in describing her relationship with Shonda. So this is what she says. Things have changed, though. In Shonda finding her power and becoming more comfortable with her power, she's empowered me, and that took her a and that took her a while to get to. It was part of her evolution. It's also why our relationship is so special. I was always loyal to her, and she responds well to loyalty. So to me, this was, wow, like this is what we do here. We talk about work style. We talk about management style. And this to me was a conversation about leadership and what makes for good leadership, but what helps good leadership. She says here basically that she and Shonda grew together, that Shonda Rhimes had to also find her footing. And one of the things that helped Shonda find her footing, one of the things that empowered Shonda was knowing that someone like Ellen was loyal to her. And I think that that is such a a beautiful concept for us to start accepting about leaders that leaders traditionally have been presented as these, um, well, traditionally they've been men, right? And they've been, they've been white men and white men, right? And they've been presented as aggressive and invulnerable. All knowing. Yes. And there's very little room in that conversation for what leaders need. And when you say that leaders need and can be successful with loyalty, there is a vulnerability there. 
And I don't want, like, I hesitate to use the, the word vulnerability because it implies weakness. It isn't. It's openness. Um, and so Shonda Rhimes is demonstratively a great leader. And every great leader, I think we're learning, craves loyalty um, and gets better with loyalty. Well, and you said something really interesting earlier about the new model of loyalty being loyalty going down, not just up. That's right. When they get it, this is like, it's almost, it, it almost becomes a, a light bulb moment. Like, this feels good. I want this. So maybe it's great if I give it out as well, if I'm loyal. And I, I think that this is such an important discussion because in the last 15 years, in all industries, we've been examining new models of leadership and what those qualities are. And they have, and, you know, less and less are we talking about those other adjectives, aggressive, uh, all-knowing. And more and more we're talking about, I mean, the official term for it, if you look at like your Harvard textbooks or whatever, is servant leadership. Um, like I, I'm here to serve those who work for me? That's right. Huh. Um, and those are in your business text and whatever. I prefer to use this kind of language where loyalty goes in both directions. You know, I agree with all of that. And I love that kind of model kind of sketched out like that, that you can be and should be loyal to your employees, um, and empower them that way. I read this in a slightly different way. Uh, in a way that I loved, I think, just as much. Uh, when she talks in the quote that you read, she says, uh, you know, as she became more comfortable with her power, it took her a while to get to. It was part of her evolution. Uh, it's part of why our relationship is so special. I was loyal to her. If you read between the lines there, what that says to me is Shonda wasn't perfect. I am the first person to vaunt Shonda Rhimes to the ceiling and to celebrate her and say she's the second coming of television, and I believe all of it. But that is not fair to her. That does her a disservice to say this is a perfect person and a perfect leader. And what I love in what Pompeo says there is like, yes, she wasn't perfect. Who's perfect? We have both gotten better together as we've gotten older. Uh, we have grown together, as you say, and when you allow people to make mistakes and allow them to change, then you get to a bigger, better, stronger place together. And that's what I really love about that. What I really love about that is I just listening to you now, it again brought something full circle to me because it goes back to what you have been teaching me, want versus need. Imperfect people have needs. Yeah. When it's perfect, all you want, all you do is want. Sure. You mean in, yeah, in a business relationship, in a work love relationship, whatever. Yeah. Well, when it's perfect or when you think it's perfect, all you do is want and that translates to take. Need is something else. Um, and I think that that is, you know, you're exactly right about not, about not sort of canonizing Shonda. I mean, we do. And she's <laughs> I'd love to. And I, I admire every achievement that she's made. But it would be a falsehood for us listening and almost like a, a denigration of her work to imply 
that she's never made a mistake because that's how you get better. You make mistakes. You make missteps. That makes you improve. Mm -hmm. And I love that for all Ellen Pompeo sets off firebombs in this article, she's very gentle and still honest about saying, yeah, she made some mistakes too. I I go back to loyalty too because I think it's being redefined a little bit in this context from the way it used to look in the workplace. You think about loyalty, let's say 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and you think about the person who's in the same company for 30 or 40 years. And like, you know, at the 20 year mark, you get like a watch and the 30 year mark, you get a car or whatever. And the loyalty was always a quality that was valued just in the employee right? Like in, not in the leader, but in, in the worker. Um, you know, this is what a wonderful dude or what a wonderful woman she was. And she stayed with us for, for all this time. And it, it implied stability and also kind of just like, you know, accepting. It's a gold-plated head pat a little bit, That's right? right? Like good dog. You didn't shake the, rock the boat. You didn't ask for too much. You just were so loyal because you put the company first or you prioritized the company. We're seeing it in a different way here, the way that, uh, the way that Ellen is articulating how loyalty looks. She was like, I was loyal to Shonda. It empowered Shonda. And my loyalty to her enabled me to go to her and say, look, I've been on this show for you and loyal to you. And because of this show, I don't work anywhere else. I can only work here because of the schedule, right? Like, you know, it's 24 episodes. It's how many, like, it's not possible for me to go work anywhere else. I have been there and now it's time for me to be incentivized. I think it's a really, really exciting reimagining of what loyalty looks like, that you can ask for things and that you can be And you can demand to be incentivized and still be loyal at the same time. Yeah, I agree. And I think there are notes here for bosses as well. If you are one, if you have one who is great, uh, you know, the line I love here is she says, she was so empowered that she was generous with her power. I have heard a couple of people in my like decent number of years in the work world now, good Lord. Uh, I once heard a very powerful person praising a very unpowerful person to the people above her. So here's our person who's a a kind of a second in command, and she's talking about somebody like on tier five, and she's bigging them up to the people above her. She doesn't have to do that. She can take all the credit herself, but instead she does that, and I will never forget what she said. She said, it costs me nothing. It costs her nothing to send that positivity up. Pompeo talks about Shonda letting her be the highest paid woman on television. If Shonda Rhimes had cock-blocked this deal in any way, it doesn't happen. It only goes forward because she feels, to quote Ellen Pompeo, generous with her power. It's it's just something that is... It's not that revolutionary, but it is that rare that we're talking about it with this kind of reverence in our voices. So here's the question. It's not revolutionary, but is it gendered? Because, you know, when we were talking about the podcast before we started the podcast and we were lining this up, I said to you that I, I wanted to raise this as a point of discussion where loyalty is because your 
typical traditional mold of a male leader was that loyalty was expected, the leader expected it, but I don't know if that male leader traditionally would have listed it among the qualities that were his strongest. And interestingly enough, before we started this podcast and I threw this out there on the table, Yasik, who is sitting here and who has led, he's been a manager, he typically, you know, just for shits and giggles, likes to disagree with me and say that, like, I'm a man-hater. Oh, both of us. He has <laughs> finds a way somehow to take both of our dissenting opinions and disagree with both of them. Yes. Um, he agreed. It was a rare, almost like a rare, he, he actually nodded his head and he, he agreed. It's not, so, you know, it is one of those areas where it may be something that women are more comfortable wearing the need for loyalty and the ability to give it. And I wonder if like, and hopefully it's changing. Like I'm not, I keep using the word traditional because hopefully in the workplace, more male leaders are wearing loyalty and showing it and sharing it and passing it on. But I wouldn't say that it was an attribute like, you know, in the 1980s that uh, that was a descriptor of a male CEO. Loyal? You know, I listen to you and I kind of start thinking about, well, why would that be? And then I thought, and this applies certainly to everybody we've been talking about in this conversation in so many words. I thought there are men who are extremely successful and men who are less successful and you know, I'm, there are people who are bitter about being passed over or not, or have succeeded despite not being qualified. But I wonder whether it has to do with the fact that massive blanket statement, every woman has been underestimated at some point in time or many points in time. And you know, when you meet another woman, no matter what, no matter whether you like her or can't stand her, work with her or can't bear to have her in your sightline, you know that that person has been similarly underestimated. So the value of loyalty goes up that much more. I love that. Now, as a counterpoint though, we did get an email from Sarah and maybe this is hopeful, this is encouraging, um, but I am curious, and I'm shouting this out to everybody out there who works in a similar industry, if you have had a similar experience. So here goes from Sarah. Sarah says, the part that struck me most was the quote about being empowered and then being generous with your power. To me, that's key to continuing to break glass ceilings and challenge the status quo. It's also something I've experienced in my own working life at my law firm. There was a super charismatic, high-powered partner who was empowered and also generous with his power. He was the top generating lawyer in the firm, but he also shared the most client credits of any partner in the firm. It was so smart because by sharing credits and being generous with his power, including with many women and people of color, the people he shared had ownership in the clients and in turn, those people churned out more work and were highly motivated. And the email goes on to, to compliment this, this male leader, this partner. Now, we both have friends who work in law. The stories I've heard about law is a very old school, old boys environment. Oh, yeah. 
And we should clarify that this is a Sarah, but not Sarah who That's writes right. for Lainey Gossip. That's right. Um, and so in our ex- my experience, I, I don't mean to speak for you, but I think it's it's I, this isn't like, <laughs> I don't oh, think that this is. <laughs> lawyers tell the best stories. Lawyers right. can dish the dirt and tell you the reality of the realities behind the scenes. So the law firm is a pretty conservative environment. And it runs on a set of um, unspoken rules, right? Like yes. unspoken social codes and checks and balances that aren't always overtly written out. So I have to say, I hear great stories from people who work in law firms, and so many of our readers actually work in law firms. But I wouldn't say that the common um, the common assessment from people who are inside law are that it's a progressive industry. And so this is encouraging to hear from Sarah. So if you are in a similar industry um, and you have a conflicting perspective, please do share. If you have a similar perspective, we'd love to hear it. We want to talk about it on our next podcast because, again, this Ellen Pompeo article is essentially our, like, what do you call it? A document? Like, uh, what, constitution? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> The constitution of show your work. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting about that is that what Sarah says and also what Ellen Pompeo says here is that to be that person and to have that kind of capital to spread around, it's not always the most direct path. You know, she talks about how she stuck around. She could have set the place on fire half a dozen times and said, fuck you, then I'm leaving. They won't give me 5,000 more dollars. I'm leaving. Uh, that Sarah's colleague that she talks about could have taken a more direct route to personal success. So you asked a little earlier about what we take with us in our own careers, in our own negotiation. And I think the lesson here is that sometimes it is worth biding your time sitting back and thinking about which way to to drive mm-hmm. uh, rather than being ruled by passion, mm-hmm. which is the way many of us often govern ourselves, for better or worse. To close, though, uh, not that we aren't fist-pumping and loving Ellen Pompeo, and again, I, I think we just wanted to make her our constitution or our whatever. <laughs> like, what? what is it, Magna Carta? Yeah, uh, a creed. <laughs> yeah. Um, we did get an email from someone we'll call C, which just offers somewhat of a different perspective on the industry where Ellen works. And we've been reading the names of the people who sent us emails, but I think it will become somewhat obvious why we are using only an initial for this final email. That's right. Now, to be clear, C really enjoyed Ellen's interview and says that she was reciting quotes and definitely here for it. She uses the word exhilarating in all caps. That's right. Feel the same way. That said, she did take exception to uh, what Ellen says in the interview, and this is the specific quote. The quote is, acting to me is boring. An actor is the least powerful person on set, so I don't care about chasing roles. Here's what C has to say to that. While I am there for everything she says, I do take issue with the woe is the actor tone, specifically the Actors are the least powerful person on set. 
That to me shows a lack of self-awareness and ignorance of your own privilege. I say this as someone who worked as a production assistant and then a costume assistant on some major sets. You want to talk about who has the least amount of power? A female PA. You want to talk about who can never, ever complain, never command a higher pay? The lowest people at the bottom of the totem pole that are making your show so you can make your millions of dollars. Now, like I said, I'm all for Ellen and her empowerment. Without a doubt, she should make more and command more. But can that empowerment please extend to us? Because we make your movies, fetch your coffee, dress you in clothes, and experience so much harassment and assault on set, but somehow still get swept under the rug, not even in the footnotes of what it means to be a female in this industry. Wow. First of all, C, like, I wish we could, we don't want to compromise you, so that's why we keep calling you C, but, like, C, this is why we, we're doing the thank you. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the only points I have seen that hits this so clearly on the head. There are lots of comments at the bottom of the Hollywood Reporter article going, why do actors make this much money? What are they, nurses? They're not saving lives, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, of course. But uh, actors make a small fraction of what the media conglomerates make off their backs. So that's why the sums that seem astronomical are, if not reasonable amounts of money, proportionate, let's say. Uh, yeah, like the head of ABC Disney laughs at $20 million. <laughs> Again, sneezes $20 yeah. million. Right. Yeah. Um, you remember I said earlier that Yasik somehow finds a way to disagree with both of us even when we're disagreeing? I feel like I agree both wholeheartedly with C and with Pompeo at the same time. You know, when she talks about actors being the least powerful people on set, to me that means creatively. It's in the context of wanting to be a producer and saying that that's her real creative joy, that directing, which she has done a lot, takes her away from her kids, which is absolutely true. Uh, directing is a nice life, but in the moment it is not flexible or conducive to family life. You're necessarily there for more than the 14 hours we talked about and uh, for weeks before and after. You're there every day at six and until you finish three days later every day. Um, so she's talking about the fact that when there are creative discussions about which way something goes, uh, about how to tackle the tone of a project, about who gets to drive the direction of a series of uh of a story of the way something happens that that actor, you know, when people are feeling obnoxious, they call them meat puppets, right? They stand there and say the words that somebody else thinks up. Uh, they stand in places that somebody else decides. They even wear the clothes that somebody else picks out. Speaking of people who work uh, as PAs and in wardrobe. Then, of course, C is entirely exactly correct. Uh, you, you think that actors are disposable? PAs are routinely told in so many words that they're disposable. Uh, often, because they have other commitments or other jobs, they don't do a whole production or a whole show. Uh, they can come and go on given days or spend a few weeks here and then 
move on to something else. And everybody's like, where was that other guy who used to pick me up in the morning? Oh, he's gone now. Uh, so that is absolutely true. But of course, you're looking at me again nodding because I know you know the joy and the symmetry of this is that the way things change is for people like Ellen Pompeo, who now have all this power to swing around, to change the tone of the sets that she now creates. And, you know, you described that set and you described what that set looks like. You know what show does a really good job of showing people? Like, for those of you who kind of want to get, you know, a semi-fictionalized version of that, Unreal. Oh, what a good point. Right? So if you watch Unreal, or if you haven't, watch Unreal, if only for the homework of understanding what a set looks like and what it's like for a PA and, you know, a a camera assistant or whatever. Then you really understand that it's a thank, these are all like they're very thankless jobs. And, you know, for context, the powerful people on that show are not generous with their power. They are almost vindictive at times and they're manipulating the actors who are real people but still actors in a bachelor type scenario, the talent, let's say, uh, and they're not generous with their power and they are making them dance around at their whim. Uh, And that's exactly what C is talking about. And she's not exaggerating it in any way. No, she's not. And I, you know, maybe to close, I want to like share from my own experience because I do work in television. So I see the PAs and I see the camera people. And I would like to think that I'm not a dick. And I would hope and I, you know, and I I think that I generally have a, a decent reputation. That said, I also was, and I'm talent. So I am a host. I'm in front of the camera. It also, because we all live with our own blinders, it also took me a while in TV and this is embarrassing now that I'm saying out loud, it also took me a while to figure out that my schedule, as exhausted as I thought I was, if we were going on location somewhere, um, that my schedule was a fraction of the production schedule. So let's say that my call time as talent is five o'clock in the morning. Well, the camera guys have to be there at three. And they're there at three because they're setting up the lights and they're setting up the cables. When I wrap at two in the afternoon, they have to stay and strike. Strike means… Wrap up. Wrap up. So they have to take down all the cables. So their day on the front end is two hours longer than mine and on the back end is two hours later. And like, this is embarrassing. Like I said, I was like, I didn't know. I just thought the lights went up by themselves, I guess, right? Like when I first got into TV. And the reason that that happens to explain, which underscores C's point uh, and Pompeo's a little bit, is to reserve the energy of the talent uh, for when they are actually doing their job, which is being on camera. It's to reserve the energy and to have them get some sleep because if the PA or the producer or the camera guy looks like they haven't showered the next day, nobody notices except their own colleagues, uh, but they notice if the actor or the on-air talent has. So that is one of the reasons that on-air talent are catered to. Yes, it's because they are, you know, uh, highly powered and highly paid in lots of cases, but it's also because their job is unique in 
the way they present what they do. So for me, it's been an ongoing process of research and understanding because like a show like ours and God, Grey's Anatomy is like honestly a mini corporation. And so what Ellen Pompeo hopefully is doing as we see in this article is learning more about every department of that corporation. She's clearly empowered herself to learn about the financial dynamics and all of that. She has started directing, which means she understands what it looks like and feels like from the other side of the camera. And hopefully with a leader like her, mentored by Shonda Rhimes, the seas of the world, yes, will be pulled up too. Yeah. And I just want to point out that, uh, you know, every time you're on a set, as you advance through your career, uh, when people have said to me, wow, this is such a lovely environment, it's you think, well, it's not that revolutionary. It shouldn't be that unusual that this set feels that way. But to that point, see your last line, not even in the footnotes of what it means to be a female in this industry. This is cold comfort farm. But again, this is across the board in any industry. If you are sitting at reception somewhere, listening to a podcast, if you are the lowest person on the totem pole anywhere, you're not just not a footnote. You are studying to implement the changes that you will implement when you rise up in your career. And you really will. It's You'll be amazed at what you are able to enact and change just by being the human being that you wish other people were to you. On that note, Ellen Pompeo, thank you. Oh, my God. Like, she wrote the Bible. (laughs) And, you know, you used to commemorate each episode of Show Your Work with this is our such and such a number episode. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if we should just, like, quote quotes from the article, like Bible quotes now, you know, just like uh, Ellen Pompeo, chapter nine, uh, because that's kind of what she's given us. Well, I do have something to propose. You know, we do the do we need to care about? Yeah. Uh, every at the end of every episode, and typically the do you need to care about is someone who we both propose is doing great work and asserting themselves, and that's why we need to care about them. Yeah, or we talk ourselves into caring or or convince yeah. the other, sure. So maybe we tweak that a little bit. At the end of every episode, we give someone the Ellen Pompeo. Who's getting the Ellen Pompeo this week? I love that. Uh, we could also implement it. We can also alternate with... What would Ellen Pompeo say to that? (laughs) Yes. And the Ellen Pompeo this week can apply to who Ellen Pompeo is going to trash. That's right. Yes. Because I will go to sleep tonight thinking about, can you be good after 14 seasons in a show? That's fucking talent. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for all of your emails asking us to talk about Ellen Pompeo. We were so happy to read them and really grateful that you wanted to hear about Ellen Pompeo and show your work. So thanks for listening. Um, Keep uh, checking us out on iTunes and Google Play and leaving your comments. Yeah, we are delighted to be linked with a badass article like this. We are excited to hear about what you thought and what you argued about at your work with your colleagues. 
Keep it coming. Thank you, Ellen Pompeo. Show your work. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.